all. We are thankful for all of you and your being here this morning. Uh, the last few weeks, we've been preaching through this series called Let's Go, looking at the great commission of Christ when he says, hey, go into all the world, reaching, teaching, baptizing everybody that you can uh, in my name. Um, I love that last worship song we sang. That's a newer one for me. Um, a lot of beauty in that, right, of saying, Lord, you are worthy in the midst of the circumstances I may find myself in. You are worthy in the midst of sometimes even having confusion, doubt, frustrations, or misunderstanding. Um, today is going to be a little bit different in the sermon uh, than, than other Sundays. We're still preaching, naturally, from the Scripture. We're going to be right there talking about the Great Commission. We're going to be looking at a few other examples in the Bible of men and women that in the midst of their lives, in the midst of receiving a definitive call from God in their lives, y'all, they lived a life like ours, and sometimes their lives got difficult, where they didn't understand all the things going on around them. Uh, one of my favorite things to do on Fifth Sundays at the church I grew up in is we would do a Fifth Sunday sing, and people would get a hymn on, you can call it any number, right? We had the same hymn book that people had had for a long time. So me and my sister used to try to fake everybody out by like looking through and calling out a hymn that wasn't a song. It was just like a reading text. And nobody ever thought it was funny, but we tried to do that. And then we tried to pick songs that nobody knew. And somehow that pianist knew how to read music and play it. But um, my favorite song to always pick when I was doing a song that I actually really liked was number three in that hymn book growing up, which was Worthy of Worship worthy of praise, worthy of honor and glory. I want us to remember that this morning as we start this conversation. We have a God who is worthy of everything we bring into his midst. Now, y'all, this can be difficult to be a follower of Christ in a world that oftentimes doesn't reflect the teachings of Christ, let alone want to hear about the teachings of Christ. So today we're gonna to be looking at what do we do? How do we move forward? Are we still called to go and teach, and reach, and baptize, even if we in our own hearts, our own minds, may have some struggles, some doubts, some confusions. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're gonna see that this scripture is full of people who were very similar to us. They had a call from God that was perfect, but lived in a world that was not. If you got a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, all right? We're gonna be reading passages um, looking at a few different people today. So we're starting out with these guys, the disciples, then we're gonna jump to a guy named Thomas and then Jeremiah and then David and John the Baptist. Like we're all over the place. Just have your Bibles ready. It'll be on the screen as well. As we're reading through the Great Commission, I'm backing up a couple of verses. We've been reading like 18, 19, and 20. We're starting in verse 16 today. Matthew 28, verse 16. This is Jesus. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. And he says this to the disciples. It says, now to the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is sending out what we call the Great Commission. Let's go. He's giving a charge to his followers and saying it's go time. It's important to notice here that the people that he's talking to 
are not some extras who were present at the feeding of the 5,000 and maybe got an extra piece of bread or an extra fish. These are not the next door neighbors down the street from Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house who maybe have gotten word about what Jesus has done. These are Jesus's 11 closest disciples, the ones that he has poured his heart, soul, and mind into for the last three years of his life, preparing them to take this message in the gospel that he's giving into all of the world. One of those guys' name is Thomas. Thomas has a nickname in the church. If you've been in the church for a while, maybe grew up in church, does anybody know Thomas's nickname throughout time? What do we call him? Da- what a downer, right? I've wondered in the last week, I don't think God allows fighting in heaven. That seems like it would lead to something sinful. But if he did, right? You ever wonder what would happen if you went up to a guy like Thomas was like, doubter, if he just busted you in the face? If you're a guy, he wouldn't hit a girl. I just wonder, like, this guy whose name, for good reason, and we're going to look at the text that says why he's called Doubting Thomas. He doubted, but he gets the nickname Doubting Thomas for the rest of church history because of one incident in his life where he doubted. There aren't many passages in scripture about this guy named Thomas. Just a few times. One of the other times that we hear about this guy named Thomas, who's present with Jesus as he's hearing the Great Commission for the first time, is in John chapter 11, verses 14 to 16. In John 11, verses 14 to 16, Jesus is doing some teaching, and he gets word that his friend Lazarus is very sick. Mary and Martha say, if you can get somebody to Jesus, get Jesus to come, Jesus could heal Lazarus, all will be good. For whatever reason, Jesus chooses to take his time where he is and does not go and heal the guy immediately. Word gets back that Lazarus has died. And Jesus then says, as we're about to read, now it's time to go and check on the family. Another little cultural tidbit here is that a lot of people really wanted to kill Jesus at this time. It wasn't an easy time to be a follower of Jesus. They were kind of tracking his steps. So many of the disciples knew if we go with Jesus, it's going to lead to some difficult things. And this is the reaction of the disciples, especially Thomas, when he hears that. John 11, verses 14 to 16 Then Jesus told them plainly, these are the disciples, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twin, sidebar, this is a deep theological concept here, Uh, he's called the twin because he was a twin, like that's all he got, right? More than likely he's had a twin, it's his other nickname, he's a doubter and he's a twin. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Thomas speaks up first to the rest of the guys and says, let's go that we may die with him. That's legitimate faith from this guy who says, let's go find Lazarus, baby. We'll raise him back. He doesn't know what Jesus' plan is. He doesn't know if they're gonna go to jail or even be killed because of it, but he knows that Jesus has said we're gonna do something. So he's all in and says, let's do it. So for us in the room, if any of you this morning may be thinking, well, I mean, but if I were there, I wouldn't have been like Lazarus. I want to bust your bubble and let you know you, you, you would have. Okay, like it, you probably would have. We don't hear as much about, let's say Lazarus or Thomas. Thomas, if Lazarus, you all come back to life. Resurrection, here we go. <laughs> Thomas, Thomas, Lazarus, there's so many things. If we were to think, but Lord, I would never doubt like, like Thomas doubted. To be honest with ourselves for a little bit, just for next, you're in a safe space. And to know that we have received the same commissioning from God, the same challenge, the same call. We live in the same world. 
with the same struggles and doubts and fears and insecurities. The second passage about Thomas is the one that most of us are familiar with if you call him Doubting Thomas in John chapter 20, verses 24 to 28. Jesus has gone to the cross. They saw him die on the cross. Most of the disciples had fled because they were scared. Peter was kind of close by. John standing in the crowd with Jesus' mom, Mary. So they see Jesus die. Jesus resurrects three days later. It's wild. We hear that in a post-resurrection world, and we're all like, you brought doggone right, he resurrected. Y'all, they had seen him dead. You know what I mean? Like, he was dead in a grave, and now he's come back to life. That's never happened before. We can maybe acknowledge that would have been a difficult concept to grasp. Jesus did something that no one else in his day had done. One, he resurrected himself from the dead. And two, he started appearing to people, teaching them, and eating with them, and hanging out with them to affirm that he really had resurrected. The catch was he showed up to some of the disciples, but all of them weren't in the room at the same time. This guy Thomas wasn't present when the rest of the disciples were there. What was he doing? We don't know. But he shows up to the disciples, and they see Jesus, and then tell Thomas, brother, Jesus is alive. And Thomas has a hard time wrestling with that. In John chapter 20, verses 24 to 28, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. For when Jesus breathed his last on the cross, the other two criminals crucified with Christ weren't dead. They broke their legs. They would suffocate in their torturous way. Jesus was already dead in that moment. So a Roman soldier stabbed Jesus with a spear. Heart, blood and water came out, meaning he had already experienced death. His heart had already shut down. So he says, unless I put my hand in the hole in his side that I saw when we buried the body, I will never believe. Verse 26 says, eight days later. That's important. Eight days later. Bless your child. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Where was Thomas eight days later? With the disciples. Hear this, church. Thomas, eight days prior to this, had just questioned the resurrection of the Savior of the world. He didn't understand, and he was unable to believe in that moment. And yet, eight days later, he's still sitting at the table, having fellowship and communion and conversations with the other disciples. What does that mean for you and for me? To me, it means that there will be times in our lives where we are not gonna fully understand everything that's going on, but one of the greatest places for us to be is in the fellowship of other believers, having the difficult conversations. Although the doors were locked, I love the writer of the gospels because they put tidbits in there that are just cool, like doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, Jesus said to Thomas, he calls him out, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my sight. Jesus is getting real here, right? He's acknowledging, I heard the prayer, but like you said, you weren't gonna believe. Here we go, touch the hand, touch the side. Jesus said, place it in my side, but look what he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. 
right after that, Jesus actually says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And then Jesus talks about us for a second. This is cool. He speaks a blessing. Does anybody in here believe in Jesus and the resurrection of Christ? If you do, raise your hand. Okay, Jesus speaks this over you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In that moment, I truly believe Jesus very well could have had you and me on his mind. Those who have not seen and yet believe. But Thomas didn't see and he struggled with it. His friends understood it and for some reason they let him stay in the camp. Eight days later, Thomas was there, part of the group, with his doubts. If you are struggling this morning with doubt, with confusion, with some type of frustration within the faith, if you have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior, you're not going to be losing that. Like you're a father of Christ. You're a child of God. Things in this world will try to remind you and convince you that you are no longer part of the fold because you're in a moment of struggle. I would love to tell you as a pastor that once you confess Christ as Lord, right? Once you go through a public, confess Christ and Lord, you're a Christian. You go through a public baptism a few days later, like you show the world, I have decided to follow Jesus, that you will never have a doubt, a struggle, or a fear again that's not written anywhere in the Bible. And that's difficult because we live in a world, I believe, that wants us to think that once we confess Christ as Lord, everything is blessed and highly favored all the time. The filter is always good. Y'all, it's hard following Jesus' example. It's hard living in this world that's full of sin and hurt and sickness and pain and death, which is one of the many reasons I think God allowed these stories that we're looking at today to be recorded so that we can be reminded we are in good company, but more importantly, to be reminded that in our moments of doubt and struggle in the faith, we serve a God, according to this story, who moves towards us, not away from us. What does Jesus do when Thomas doubts? Does he say, no more chance? Mm -mm. He shows up and calls him out like he is. He confronts his struggle, and then he reassures his presence. What does it say in Matthew 28, 17? It's a verse I usually just kind of go over when I'm reading the Great Commission. You're like, okay, that makes sense. Matthew 28, 17, we just read it. It's part of the Great Commission. All these guys are on the mountain. Jesus is doing his thing, resurrected. Thomas, Tommy, Tommy. I was looking at Tommy. They could have called him Tommy, but Tommy the doubter was in the fold, right? Thomas was in the fold. He's on the mountain. Jesus is giving this pep talk, about to ascend into heaven, bodily ascension. I believe that, which means I'm crazy enough to think Jesus went from saying, high five, high five, high five, eat some fish, eat some bread. Here we go. And he just goes up bodily. I don't understand all the physics of it, but I believe it with all of my being. I believe it, church. They are seeing this take place. And the scripture says that the 11, not the naysayers, not the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the people that didn't believe, the foundational members of the church of Christ are watching this happen. And scripture says they worshiped him, comma, but some doubted. What do you think Jesus may have been thinking as he's ascending, watching some of them doubt what was happening? I don't know. Did Jesus get to heaven and say, Lord, we're in trouble, brother. We're a mess, man. I've done everything they can. What does this mean for me and for you? If the 11 disciples who were present when Jesus was raising people from the dead, feeding 5,000 people with a couple of fish, help me, Lord. <laughs> Boom, a couple of fish and some bread. 
They were present when Jesus turned water into wine. They were present when Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night. They were present when Jesus was crucified on a cross and breathed his last. They were present when the women came and said the body's gone and they run as fast as they can to the tomb. They go in. Jesus is missing. Their world is completely wrecked. Jesus starts showing up through locked doors and saying crazy stuff like, touch my hand, touch my side. You believe now, son? Hear this. Some of them still doubt it. How? And Jesus still says what? Some of them doubt it. So what happens right after that? Jesus said, scratch this. I gotta find some better believers. That's not in the Bible. Some of them, let's read it again. Some of them doubted. And then Jesus said, go. Tell everybody about what you see. He doesn't even address the doubt. Why? Because he knew the gospel that he was giving was greater than any doubt they would ever have. He knew that because of who he was, his mercy was always going to be more. That these men were going to go into the uttermost parts of the world, y'all. Thomas went to India when it wasn't even on the global map yet of the Roman Empire, preaching the good news of Christ and starting churches. You think he had some doubts along the way? I think he probably did. But his faith in Christ was greater than the doubts that he had. And he was willing to go into God's presence with his doubts. We live in a world that I believe wants to convince us that if you have a doubt or a struggle in your faith, you are to withdraw and isolate and separate and deconstruct and all these other things. I'm not questioning bad things that have happened in the world. But what I am saying is one of the worst things that we can do in our faith when we get into a moment of crisis is to withdraw for a long period of time by ourselves. Now, some of us, y'all, you know I'm talking about like we need to get away for a little bit. Like It's about to get ugly. You're like, give me a moment. Let me catch my breath. I think that's biblical. I'm all there. But we're not to camp out there forever. We're to have people around us who can say, I hear that doubt, brother. I hear that doubt, sister. Come back. Let's wrestle with this together. Let's trust in the Lord together. We're continuing to go with what God has given us. But it wasn't just them. It was men in the Old Testament as well. This morning, before we get into those couple of guys, to remember, if you're nervous, if you're struggling with doubt, if you're not ready, I want to encourage you this morning, the Great Commission is not for someone fancier, more educated, or more called. It's for every disciple of Christ. Which means that the disciples, as they watched Jesus ascend into heaven, had some doubts and struggles with what was going on, according to the text. And yet they still chose to say, all right, we're doing this, let's go. I've asked myself this week, and I invite you to ask yourself in the next week, Lord, is there anything in my life that I'm currently using as an excuse, whether it be a doubt or a misunderstanding, or I'm not there yet, that is inhibiting me from going to the places you have called me to go. And Jeremiah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, this joker was just doing his thing. God called Jeremiah to go out and preach to the nations. He did. I don't know what it was like. We have some of the stories, but you ever mean being a guy like that? Like we hear that, we're like, he's got a whole, a ginormous book in the Bible. Like this guy's serious. Preaching to all these people, Telling everybody about who God is and what God's done. He was honest with the Lord in his life. Look at what Jeremiah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, says in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 to 8. Oh Lord, you have deceived me. I was deceived. You're stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become, this is his prayer to the Lord. I have become a laughing stock all the day, and everyone's mocking me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction for the word of the Lord 
has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. I doubt in the next few years we will have a Christian worship song that quotes Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 to 8. Right? And I'm not, I'm not making, I'm serious. I think as modern Christians, we want to walk into a room and praise the Lord for all of his goodness, acknowledge him for who he is and what he's done, and maybe sometimes fall into the temptation of not acknowledging that this life is hard. And we don't understand everything that happens. And there, hear this, according to scripture, there will be times, not may, there will be times when we have doubts and frustrations and maybe a little bit of anger, a little bit of confusion. Would sound weird though, wouldn't it? Like, I praise you, Lord, for your word being a reproach and derision. I'm telling people about violence and destruction. You know why I'm saying these things? Because God called him to preach a word. And I think he got that call like most of us would get that call. Baby, let's go, you know? I'm gonna preach repentance. People are gonna come to faith. Billy Graham style, like people get baptized, gonna name stuff after me, do a library, and I'm not dissing any of those things. But that's not what went down for Jeremiah, y'all. He started telling people, y'all, the way of God is like this, but you're living like this. Y'all gotta turn. And you know what they did? Praise God. No! They said, you need to shut your face. No, we're not. And they mocked him, and they beat him, and he became a laughingstock for the people. Was Jeremiah unfaithful in his witness? Absolutely not. Was he honest in his faith? I believe he was. Why? Because he's praying this to the Lord. He was struggling, and he writes down the struggles. One of the, again, the reasons I believe this book is so valid is because if it wasn't, why would they write down the broken stuff, you know? Why would they write down the stuff that makes them look human, I think it's because God allowed it because he knew that humans today would need to read things like that. And remember, you know what? Sometimes we're going to have a bad Tuesday. We're going to have a bad season. Sometimes we're going to have some doubts. There will be times where I'm going to walk into a situation like the song we just sang, someone in a hospital room and not understand everything that's going on. There will be times when we will leave an oncologist appointment and say, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening. Like that. There will be times when families will leave different gatherings. And maybe, if you're anything like me and my family, a few times in life, just prayed under our breath, Lord, if you would give me the strength to just get to the car, you know? I can't do this in front of people anymore. And to know, y'all, if you're in that right now, that doesn't make you a non-Christian. That makes you human. And according to the scripture, a lot of other followers of God struggle with some of the same things. We have to decide, Lord, what do I do in those moments? Am I willing to bring those to you? Or do I keep those for myself? King David, he was a big deal, says this in Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. This is crazy. He was the guy that grew up. It's on the, well, it's not. I'm going to turn there. Anybody memorize the books of the Bible back in the day? Do you all still say that when you're looking for books? I do too. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. This is David, who killed the giant with the stone, did the whole thing. David, on his tombstone, if he had one, it would have said, a man after God's own heart. Like, true story. His nickname wasn't doubting David. It was a man after God's own heart. I mean, this jugger had his faith together. And yet he wrote these words in a Psalm 13, 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
How long must I take counsel in my soul? How long will I have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's depressing. You ever read that in a devotion book? We don't want to, I don't, I don't want to read that kind of stuff, right? And be like, well, gee, Lord, where'd you go? Who was David? He was born into Bethlehem, a little town where Jesus was also born a few years later, to a guy named Jesse. This guy named Samuel, a few years before this was written down, a guy named Samuel showed up. He was a prophet in the land to a guy named Jesse's house because God had told Samuel the prophet that one of his kids was going to be the next king of Israel. Israel already had a king whose name was Saul. Samuel gets to Jesse's house and he says, hey man, God spoke to me. One of your boys is going to be the next king. Jesse's, Jesse's pumped. He says, meet my boys. He says, I know which one it's going to be. He brings his boys out, brings the tallest, best looking, strongest one. He says, this is it, right? And Samuel looks at him and goes, mm-mm. And I did. Well, it's got to be my next one. Is this it? No. Joker, this is a true story of a father's love for his son on earth. Jesse marches all of his boys before Samuel, and Samuel consistently says, no, that's not him, that's not him, that's not him. At the end of that passage, Samuel goes, in my translation, are you sure this is all your kids? And Jesse then says, no. No, the kid, David. He's He's watching the sheep in the field. Go get David. David walks in, and Samuel says what? This is the king. David's a child caring for sheep. Do you think at some point in David's life, he may have said, Lord, I was doing pretty good taking care of the sheep. This doesn't trek well in our modern faith society, right? Because hear this, David was called and anointed by the greatest prophet in all of Israel. God spoke, they laid hands, he's the next king, shows up on the scene, slays a giant with a rock and a a sling and a few rocks. Everybody's celebrating and then the tides turn. The king starts to chase after him and the king gives a commission, says I'm gonna kill this boy and he chases him for 10, hear this, not 10 hours, not 10 days or 10 months, For 10 years, David is hiding in caves like a criminal because people are trying to kill him all the time. And in the middle of those 10 years, he pins the paper, bro, Lord, you forgot about me? This is a lot harder than what I thought I was signing up for. What does he do with it? He brings it to the Lord. Scripture says that Psalm 13 was likely something that the people sang. You know why? Because he concludes the passage after he's described the tension of someone who loves and trusts God at the same time, he concludes the passage by saying, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David's words became a song because he wrestled with his faith in front of other people. He was a man after God's own heart, and yet there were times of his life where he could not feel the presence of God. What does that mean for you and for me? I believe it means that as a follower of Christ, as a child of God, I may encounter sometimes when I don't feel his presence nearby. That doesn't mean he is no longer in existence. It means I'm going through some stuff, and he's promised to be with me in that. One more guy, whose name's John the Baptist. That's not his full name. That's what they call him. He's also Jesus' first cousin. John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. It's a pretty cool story. John the Baptist has lived his whole life telling people about the coming Messiah. And yet it says this. See, in this passage here, John the Baptist has just been arrested because he was telling the politicians of his day that they were living in a sinful way that wasn't pleasing to the Lord. And the politicians said, we'll kill you. So they arrested him, and they're about to behead him. 
So John, one of the greatest followers of Christ, right? The precursor for Christ who said, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals, let alone baptize you, says this. John, Matthew 11, verses two to six. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent words by his disciples, because John had his followers too, and said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? He's in prison. And Jesus answered him and said, go and tell John what you hear and see. And he quotes Isaiah here. He says, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John the Baptist had spent almost his entire life in the wilderness eating locust and honey. We might hear that and think, Daniel fast. Y'all, it was weird in his day. For real. It was weird. Never got married, never had any kids as far as you know. Lived his days out preaching repentance to people. Spent most of his life being hated by his culture, including those that were of the same religion. Jesus shows up on the scene. He knows who Jesus is and that Jesus is fulfilling the prophets. He baptizes Jesus in the river and says, what does he say? Remember that? Behold, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist is the first to claim, one of the first to claim the divinity of Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And yet in his jail cell, as he's about to get beheaded, what does he do? This is real, y'all. He gets word to Jesus and says, man, are you for real? Like, I'm struggling, dude. Is this the real story? And what does Jesus say in return? He quotes Isaiah. One wild thing about his quotation of Isaiah is he quotes it verse for verse. I believe when John heard it, he began to light up. He's like, he's talking about the Savior. He's the Savior. But Jesus intentionally leaves out one line in the quotation from Isaiah when he does not say, and the prisoner shall be set free. What is Jesus saying to his cousin John who's about to get killed the next day? He is saying, oh, I'm everything I promised to be. And you will die in prison. This is just me. We don't have the recording of it. John was killed the next day. I truly believe that when John heard those words, it's just my imagination, he dropped to his knees, you know, and said, it's real. Everything I've spent my life doing, it was that reassurance from the Lord. After he does that, what does Jesus say about John? He says, there's no one greater that's ever been born of a woman than John. And yet what did John just do? He just struggled in his doubt. He's like, are you really Jesus? And Jesus, what does he say? Sure enough, I'm Jesus. What does that mean for me and for you, y'all? We're never gonna have the chance to be a disciple. Those days have already passed. In all of God's sovereignty, he knew that you and I were not cut out for the job. We might wanna say, I'd have done a better job. Probably wouldn't have, but you can argue that in heaven one day when you meet him. We might say, if he'd have let me be a prophet, I'd have been a little better than Jeremiah. You run with that if you want to. If he allowed me to be king of Israel back a couple thousand years ago, I would have penned some different things in the Psalms. I question all of those arguments, but I think God is patient and will listen to you. I do believe that God knew in all of his sovereignty that you and I would live in 2023 USA and would have some times when we got up in the morning and said things like, Lord, I don't understand what is happening. I don't like what is happening. I am struggling right now. I am questioning a lot of things. And we don't listen for advice from the world which would say in that moment, then you're not really a Christian, pack up your bags and go home. We do what the scripture teaches. 
We go into his very presence and we say, Lord, I'm struggling right now. And we have a God who is faithful and just, I believe, who will leave the 99 and find us where we are. Timothy Keller, Tim Keller once said, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after a long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but with their friends and their neighbors. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. I want us to remember this morning that God is strong enough to hold our doubts and our struggles, that when we go through a season of doubt or of struggle, we are to move towards him, not withdraw away from him. How many Bible studies do we have in life groups? We got a lot. There's a lot going on in our church. We're starting more. The goal of these groups is to send people out. Some of us this morning may be wrestling still. I want to do a great commission. I don't know if I can go all the way to Uganda or Honduras. We got groups going to both those places, right? I don't know if I can go all the way to, I always say Porterdale. We got to pick something else to pick up. Milstead, you know, and Conyers. You got to go some other crazy place. I've got to go somewhere else. Maybe some of you are wrestling this morning with all this stuff sounds good. And I'm glad guys like King David and Jeremiah and the disciples and Thomas could run with this message. But I've got too many doubts. I've got too many questions. I've got too many things I'm kind of wrestling through. Hear this. God is not prepared to allow that to be an excuse as to why you're not ready to be commissioned by him. He said to the disciples in the midst of some of their questions, go. Wrestle with these things a little bit more. Get around each other. Talk through it. Trust me. I will go with you. God is not waiting on a better version of you to save you, to redeem you, or to send you out if you have confessed Christ as Lord. So this morning I ask you, if you feel stuck, if you feel unlovable, if you are asking yourself this morning, well, I thought I was a Christian, but I'm doubting in this. I thought I was a Christian, but I'm struggling in this. Hear me. To be a Christian is to confess Christ as Lord and to put your faith and trust in him. Just because you do that doesn't mean everything else just magically disappears. We have to wrestle at times. We have to be willing to say, Lord, I want to move toward you not away from you. We have to be willing to pray and say, Lord, I need you to remind me of who you are in this moment because it's pretty overwhelming. That's the example we're given in scripture. Are we willing to say, let's go? Even if we have a few things we're working on along the way. Let's pray. Lord, today I thank you for allowing us to be used by you. Lord, I thank you for the examples in Scripture of men and women of the faith that didn't have all the answers all the time. They knew who you were, and they knew what you told them to do, and they did it well. Lord, I pray for any of the believers here today that already know who Christ is. They've committed their life to him, but right now, for one reason or another, Lord, we're going through a time or a struggle, or feeling separated, struggling with a doubt, Lord, something's happened that's caused pain or confusion. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be the type of believers, Lord, we'd be the type of congregation 
that invites our brothers and sisters into the midst when we're going through seasons of struggle, when we're going through seasons of doubt, that we'll be the type of brothers and sisters in Christ that will be willing to say over one another. Even if there's somebody here today who may come to an altar, grab one of us on the way out the door and say, man, I don't even know how to pray right now. I'm struggling so bad. I don't even know where God is right now. I can't even get the words out that we, Lord, will be a body of believers that will be willing to say, let me pray over you. Let me lift my voice up on your behalf. We will trust in Christ together. Lord, I will never understand, I won't, Lord, why you've allowed me to see and experience some of the pains and the hurts that this world has. God, some of them are awful. But Lord, I know that there have been times when all of us have more than likely just thought, if I can just get out of this room, if I can just get back to the car, if we just get to tomorrow. Lord, thank you for being present in those moments. Thank you for being a savior who seeks, Lord. You seek to save the lost, Lord. You also seek to save your children who've gone into a section of like, I don't know what to do here. Thank you for the examples in scripture of people who came before you and said, I don't get some of this. Lord, who you are will never change. What Christ has done will never change. And that is our foundation. Give us the strength, Lord, to share that story. If anybody's struggling this morning, by thinking they're not good enough, smart enough, fancy enough, fast enough, whatever, churchy enough to take the good news of Christ that they believe to somebody else, Lord, may you overwhelm them with your grace and with your mercy. I pray that when they look in the mirror tomorrow, they will see a disciple of Jesus Christ. They will see a follower of Christ. They will see someone who's been commissioned by the creator of the universe with the greatest story that's ever told to go and to share. We don't have to have all the answers. We know who Christ is and what he's done, and we will wrestle through things of life together. Lord, if there's anybody in this place that has never confessed Christ as Lord, today, through the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to them. Lord, call them by name. Remind them of who they are in you. Lord, I pray that today, before they leave this place, they would confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. They would believe in their hearts that he really did come and die on a cross, he really was buried in a grave and he really came back to life and that because of what Christ has done, Lord, we can have a relationship with you forever. Lord, as we sing our next song, our altar will be open. If anyone would like to come and pray, we'd love to have a chance to pray over our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lay down a doubt, confess, just, just live life together. Or if there's anyone who'd like to confess Christ as Lord and say, I want to believe, I want the world to know I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Let today be the day that they share that with another brother or sister. We thank you, Lord. We can never thank you enough for what you've done. Praying all these things in Jesus' name, amen.